This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. So what is this a podcast of? Well, this is not the podcast to pass your medical board exams, which are important. This is actually the podcast of wellness, of happiness, of good stories, of course, things that will inspire you. And you know what's the best part about being my podcast? I get to invite people that I meet, my friends, people that just like, wow, you have an awesome story. So it wasn't too long ago that, you know, I'm part of a nonprofit organization called Keen Kids Enjoy Exercise Now. And I was actually there during the LA Marathon and doing my stuff for Keen. And I had the opportunity to interview an athlete. And of course, doing my due diligence, I did a little research about this athlete before interviewing. And I'm like, wow. This person is truly amazing. And of course, after the interview, my reflex question was, can you come on my podcast? And she (laughs) was so nice to say yes. Today's guest is Candace Cable. And you know the format, everyone. I'm going to read her bio. And I got to tell you, it's it's not a short bio, but she is humble. And then we're going to go through the question. So Candace is an active native Angelino whose life took a turn that she could never have imagined. In a nutshell, there was a card accident at age 21, this was in 1975, that resulted in a spinal cord injury, upending her entire body, mind, and she does require the use of a wheelchair full-time for mobility. By becoming a member of a diverse disability community, she emerged to travel the world, and this is the part that just gets me all choked up, nine-time winter and summer Paralympian, 12-time medalist in three sports, Winner of 84, that's correct, marathons, including six Boston marathons and a U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Famer. During her athletic career, she realized that her sport platform is the perfect automatic door opener to dismantle ableism, racism, and negative stigmas disabled people experience daily. She also began writing and speaking about the urgency of the implementation of true equity, diversity, access, inclusion, which means we need to leave no one behind. And these messages come to life with her educational material sessions on understanding the disability experience. Candice advocates domestically and globally for opportunities and human rights for all people. She has worked with Christopher and Dana Ree Foundation, Open Doors Organization, UNICEF, State Department Speaker and Specialist Program, Drunk History Television Episodes, 
ADA Lead On Productions and was the Director of Paralympic and Disability Engagement for the LA 2028 Olympic and Paralympic Games bid organizations in LA. She attends and participates regularly at the United Nations meeting of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Candace is currently working as the head community and user insights for Ori, a startup company building reusable catheter. Last but not least, Candace is a board member of U.S. International Council on Disabilities, the Southern California Olympian and Paralympian Association, and a commissioner for the City of Los Angeles Mayor's Disability Commission, as well as a volunteer wheelchair racing coach for Angel City Sports. Candace loves Los Angeles and her disability communities. With that being said, let me introduce Candace Cable. Oh, thank you, Dr. Raj. Can I have a tape of that intro so that I can just play it anytime <laughs> I get introduced because that was fabulous. Well, you know, you deserved it because you worked at it and it, and it sounds like this is overnight. I mean, you've been doing this for quite some time and you know what? I like that your resume is packed solid with just every sentence. It's like, where did you find time to do that? Honestly, I have to tell you, I was talking to some, a friend of mine the other night. Uh, they were talking about something, you know, that I had done. She's like, how do you do all these things? I go, you know, sometimes when I hear my resume, I'm like, who is that person? <laughs> <laughs> and one of it is I'm going to be 68 this year. So really? I've been on this earth for a fair amount of time. So I wanted to pack in as much as I possibly could. Well, you know, we're only using the audio here. It's not the video, but I met you in person. You don't look no 68. I got to tell you that. Thank you, Dr. Raj. And then for everybody that is listening, I am a Caucasian woman. I have short kind of gray, white hair that... <laughs> Got some dark in it a little bit. The pandemic inspired me to grow it out, stop coloring it. <laughs> I wear black rim glasses for reading. I have good distance vision because I had cataracts and I had oh, okay. and uh, they gave me my distance vision back, which was fantastic. <laughs> and I use a wheelchair for mobility, as Dr. Raj said. And I also use the pronoun she and her. And I I'm in Los Angeles, which is the traditional lands of the Tongva people. And I honestly feel that I am incredibly blessed to be able to live in Los Angeles. Well, we're going to get to LA in a bit. So, you know, I, I, once again, you look at me, type A personality, got my notes right here. Growing up, what was your goal, air quote, dream job? I mean, I wanted to be an athlete growing up. Was were you like the best person in physical education in school? What, what did you want to be growing up? <laughs> oh, I was the opposite. Uh, <laughs> and that is another mind, mind blown, <laughs> mind blown for people because, because I was not an athlete as a non-disabled kid. I spent my first 21 years as a non-disabled person. I grew up in West Covina for all okay. the people out there. And I was a kid that had a set of parents and family members that instilled in me that I had every opportunity. Not that we had amazing financial wealth because we didn't, we were middle class or we had more opportunities than other people because of our social status or, or whatever that was. It wasn't that at all. It was the idea that 
if I wanted to try something, I could, and I could try to be whatever I wanted to be. And that instilled in me a feeling of, I want to be everything. (laughs) I want to try it all. I wanted to try all these things. And so to the athletic part, I did not enjoy competition or confrontation at all. I was an excellent spectator for sure. <laughs> I was this, a scorekeeper for the men's basketball team in high school with my girlfriend. And I think we did wrestling also. <laughs> we uh, we actually have our 50th high school reunion coming up. Oh, wow. wow. I know. So <laughs> my best friend from high school is my BFF. And yeah. we're going together. We, we've been to multiple reunions together. But really growing up, I never had this idea that I wanted to be one specific thing. I wanted to try everything, which for me has been a blessing because it's made me curious in my life. And I think that curiosity is a really wonderful thing to have because it helps us want to understand the whys, the hows, the whats, and and the things that aren't like us. So it's funny, like, you know, you're an athlete, you win a lot of these sports. There's a point where you got to be a little competitive, right? I mean, I, I assume. So how do you go from, hey, you're on the sidelines cheering people on, you're kind of like, hey, go everyone, to being a little cutthroat. Was that weird? Or was it a, a easy transition for you? You know what I mean? Well, what it was for me was wanting to be with people like me. and. In doing that, I was going to need to come out of my comfort zone and develop some new skills so I could hang out with them because it's a little bit of a fast forward, but I had my spinal cord injury at the age of 21, as you said. And after that, I I just never seen anyone with the disability that was visible. I may have been in touch with other people that had disabilities, but I didn't know that. And I wasn't seeing myself in the world. And it was super challenging for me above and beyond to make that transition. I got a lot of therapy. I had a lot of support from my family. I went down a self-destructive rabbit hole in the very beginning because I didn't know how to deal with it. After being in the hospital for six months, I was incredibly institutionalized. And in 1975, there was access for wheelchairs. When I went out of the hospital and I was on a sidewalk, if I wanted to cross the street, I had to find a driveway to go down into the street, cross the street, stay in the street until I found another driveway so I could get back on the sidewalk because there were no curb cuts then. 1973, the Rehabilitation Act had been written, but the regulations hadn't been put together. And we had not disabled people, we were not included in the Civil Rights Act. So we literally did not have civil rights. And the Rehabilitation Act would have given us more access, but they didn't write the regulations until 1977. And the Rehabilitation Act for our listeners is about anything, program, facility that was federally funded at that time in the 70s needed to be accessible for people with disabilities. So if they don't write the regulations, that means there's no enforcement, right? And they kept putting it, putting it off because one of the statements Mm -hmm. that's 
a overlay on the disability community, disability rights, disability needs is it's so complicated. It's really hard. We don't know what to do. Really, honestly, just ask us. You know, yeah. disabled <laughs> and so at that time, when I became first using a wheelchair, I felt incredibly isolated and alone. And after that therapy, I started to go to Long Beach State and I discovered Disabled Student Services. It felt like the angels started to sing because I was like, my people. (laughs) I saw people that looked like me. I saw people that didn't look like me. And I also had a confrontation with my own personal bias because when I saw someone who had a disability that didn't look like mine and it, it looked really different from mine, I remember hearing in my head, I'm not like that. You know, and it was it was a statement of my own bias and stigma that I have since dismantled because yes, of course, I am you and you are me. <laughs> you are all one, right? <laughs> so I wanted to hang out with my people to circle back on your question. Yeah. I I wanted to hang out with my people and they were doing some sports. I was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna <laughs> learn how to play sports. And I tried a few different sports and wheelchair racing was just being invented. I felt a sense of inclusion with that sport because the small community in Southern California that was evolving the equipment, and there were people on the East Coast too that were collaborating, that were evolving the equipment for wheelchair racing. One of the things they were doing was creating divisions within running races. And that first 5K or 10K that I was a part of, I, and I think it was at Griffith Park. Again, I sat on the same start line as the runners. I went over the exact same course as the runners and I crossed the same finish line. And that sense of inclusion, as well as connecting with my community, sent me in a trajectory that I am forever grateful. It's awesome. From what you said, was the hardest part of recovering from your accident was it more of the physical parts of things or was it more of the mental part and which one put up the biggest barrier for you the biggest barrier was society's attitude really okay that was the biggest barrier yeah it wasn't that hard to learn how to use a wheelchair though the wheelchairs at that time were not that friendly they were 50 pound stainless steel everest and jennings wheelchair that's so heavy oh my god a little (laughs) tiny person trying to push this thing And the mental part was connected to the societal part. Because as I said, before my accident, I was, I can do anything. I got all the opportunities. I got this going on. After my spinal cord injury, it was almost instantaneous that this blanket came down. You are not worthy. (sighs) You're not enough. You have no value. And these are all the societal overlays that have been consistent throughout the recording of time of man and woman. Because people with disabilities before the mid-20th century, which maybe 1950, 1960s, before that, we were either institutionalized or we were destroyed. Just a little story. Yeah, my very first Paralympic Games was 1980. At that time, the International Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee We're starting to negotiate having those games one after the other in the same 
countries, cities, venues. But there was no contract like there is now. If a city bids to get the games like LA did, they are required by this contract to not only put on the Olympic Games, but the Paralympic Games. Ah, okay. It's a requirement now. So back in 1980, it wasn't. And the 80 games were in Moscow. And the Soviets said, we're not going to hold the Paralympic Games because we don't have any disabled people. Maybe someone would even say that. Right? Yes. They they out of sight, out of mind. That is what they did, what we all did. Our world, our attitudes, our systems, none of it was built to include people with disabilities on any level because we didn't exist. We didn't exist, you know? And so that was 1980. This is such a young movement. And my spinal cord injury in 1975 was right in the time when disabled people were like, hey, no way, we're coming out and uh, get ready. So there were groups in Denver that were taking jackhammers to the curbs on the corner to create a curb cut so they could cross the street at the place where you should cross the street. (sighs) These things were happening then. And in 1977, a group of disabled people got together and in several states, they went to federal buildings and took over the federal buildings. Well, every single one of them failed except for one, the one in San Francisco. This was about getting the regulations written for the 504. The 504? Yep. The Rehabilitation Act that I mentioned earlier. Uh This takeover of the federal building in San Francisco is the longest takeover of a federal building ever in this country to this day. Oh, wow. Right? This is a piece of history we should be learning in school. We should be studying what has happened to our oppressed people in whatever community they are in school so that we can understand how we got to where we are right now in history. And that story is that they took over that building until the federal government said, yes, we'll write the regulations. And there are multiple pieces that are out there about that. There's a film on Netflix called Crip Camp that talks about this 504 takeover. There's also, you mentioned in my bio that I did some work with Drunk History, a Drunk History episode called 504 that I pitched And I did it because my youngest sister works in the industry and costume and wardrobe. And she was working on drunk history for several years. And I am one of her biggest fans. So I love to go and watch her work. And when I was on set one day, I said to Jeremy Cromer, and you should do an episode on disability history. And they were like, ah. And I finally got to a place where I kept pitching and pitching and pitching. I got to meet Jeremy's mom, Ronnie Croner, who is also a writer and developer in her own right, but she has a disability. And I went to the Writers Guild, Disabled Writers Guild, to pitch this idea and ask for help. 
she went home and told Jeremy, you need to do this. <laughs> well, it's definitely, you got to know somebody that knows somebody to get something done, right? <laughs> but of course, but of course. Yes. yes, I am so proud of this episode. So all you listeners, you, you must go Drunk History 504. It's only eight minutes long, but you're going to love it. Who would be a role model for you? You know, and it could be, you know, at any time in your life for anything that influenced you, whether it's to be being a, an advocate for disability or for the Olympics, who was who a role model for Candace Cable? Well, I've had so many. I think I want to talk about the very first one, a woman, her name is Mary Wilson Bogle, and she had a spinal cord injury before I did. I saw her at an event that I went to after I was going to Long Beach State. And she is this beautiful woman, you know, like me. <laughs> her hair is, has just turned white, but she had this beautiful, big head of hair, you know, in the 70s, dark, gorgeous, wonderful smile. And she was out there doing things with all kinds of people and creating change. And it was the first woman that I saw that was active. There it was mostly men because 80% of the folks that acquire a disability are male. There's less women. And at that time, there were even less women that after they acquired a disability were active out in the community in some way. They usually were staying home, maybe being married, having children. You know, when we talk about disability, we really have to think about the energy it takes to navigate the world that doesn't include it, right? There's a whole bunch of energy that we have to expend to be able to operate in the world. And we all only have so much energy. And so even just getting up each day and getting dressed, it takes more actions for me to do that than it would you to put your pants on because I can't stand up to do that. So there's a bunch of hopping and jumping around in my wheelchair to get my car. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that takes a toll. And so oftentimes we won't see people with disabilities because they don't have the transportation to get where they need. They don't, they don't have the finances to get where they need. They don't have the energy to do it because there's so many more things that have to take priority of in course. our health and wellness. And you know the health and wellness piece on so many levels because of the work that you do. And, yeah. And so the things that I gained from seeing Mary out in the world changed my perspective of what was possible for me and yeah. started to rebuild that 10 year old Candace mm -hmm. vision of I could do anything. <laughs> well, let me combine, you know, two questions together for this one, which is, okay. you know, I mean, you've participated in many sports, you know, I don't know what the options were when you first started the Paralympics, but how did you choose your core sports and what made you decide, I'm just not going to kick ass in summer. I need to actually take over both seasons and be winner and summer person. How, oh, can you answer that for me? Well, how did I choose? Well, it was a, a process of elimination for choosing my sport. Mm -hmm. I was aware of wheelchair basketball and mm -hmm. I tried that. <laughs> I didn't really like people running into me and it was really very confrontational. So yeah. that really triggered some of my <laughs> own personal inner 
trauma that I have <laughs> with confrontation that I've since worked on. I have okay. been, your listeners. <laughs> I've been doing my work, but I didn't like it then. And wheelchair tennis was just being invented. Oh, okay. Yes, I enjoyed, but I didn't like chasing that ball around like that. <laughs> right. And right. The wheelchairs that we had to be fair at the time were those heavy wheelchairs yeah. that I talked about now the wheelchairs have been refined and designed in a way that they move very quickly and turn even quicker. Oh, the okay. Basketball and the tennis one. Right. If our, if our listeners go online and they Google wheelchair basketball or wheelchair tennis, you'll see that the, the wheels are canted in major way. And that canting really gets the chair to turn fast. It makes it way more fun to chase those balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and but we didn't have that then. Okay, so I, was, I was not having it. And wheelchair racing was just being invented, and I gravitated towards that because of what I told you about the yep. road race. Yeah, but also that the community that was doing that was incredibly diverse. There were people with all different kinds of disabilities that were involved in the sport of running one who's blind could run someone is an amputee who could run someone who uses a wheelchair was using a wheelchair we were all doing this together so i'm not sure exactly what it is that really stood out beyond that feeling of inclusion but it did give me the opportunity to develop my advocacy so my advocacy of my internal advocacy for myself you know the you know stick up for yeah. myself and also the advocacy for my community, like what needs to change so that we are included? What systems do we need to dismantle so that we're, we can work together in this and everybody come forward and get what they need so that when an opportunity comes up, each and every one of us has an equitable way to address that opportunity. That was really exciting because they were just starting these folks that I connected with, they were just starting to push the road racing piece. Yeah, And so I became a part of a group that helped define how to integrate a wheelchair division into a running race. Ah, Yeah. So we developed the guidelines for race directors. We developed how the media should work with us. We gave insights into what it's like to talk to somebody with a disability, you know, because so many people are afraid they're going to say something wrong. <laughs> and, and it's because we're not familiar with each other. And we would be more familiar with each other if we learned about each other in school, right? Because that's the place where we learn about things. Yeah. And so I think that wheelchair racing, my first sport in Paralympic competition really grew because of those those two aspects and the advocacy piece began to grow after that you know we traveled all over the country together meeting with race directors and dispelling their fears about <laughs> who we would be and not be because they were afraid that of well, the image that most people have around disability is that we must be really fragile <laughs> no you're <laughs> and, right you're 100% correct. Yeah. yeah. And we aren't. We aren't. I mean, yeah, for sure. We have some fragility in different body functions. I mean, I definitely have osteoporosis now from sitting on my behind. 
for what I think 40, oh my gosh, now what am I, 45, 40 something years? So definitely my, the bones in the lower half of my body, when I get my little bone scans are just like, are you a ghost? <laughs> like, well, not all, not all together, but so then why did I go after winter and summer? Well, yeah. the opportunity presented itself. Um, a good friend of mine who was one of the leaders in wheelchair basketball, Dave Kiley, and still continues to this day to really promote and expand the sport, said, hey, you know, I tried this thing called downhill skiing, and I'm wondering, I think you might be kind of good at it. And this was in the late 80s. So I'd already established a really rocking career in a, as a wheelchair racer. And I was coming out of probably my best, Paralympic Games, 1988, the Seoul Korea Games. Yes. Out of those as a lot of success. And I was like feeling strong, <laughs> feeling my, mm-hmm. my inner uh, Hulk. And I decided, oh, I think I'll go up to Lake Tahoe and check this out because he said, well, there's this ski school up there. And one of the things that I really enjoyed to do before my spinal cord injury was hike. And I wasn't the, you know, charging hiker. It was being out in nature, following a trail and just being a part of the natural world was really very valuable to me. And I enjoyed it a great deal. And I thought it was something that I would never do again. I remember laying in the hospital room, looking out the window at this grass and thinking, I'm never going to feel the grass under my feet again. And it was really disturbing to me. And not that I can feel the grass under my feet. I can't. So (laughs) sorry, listeners are not right. I can imagine it, but I jumped into one of those ski rigs that they had. They're called sit skis. I was taken up on the chairlift and then taught to ski down a hill. And I was able to explore the trees again. And it felt like hiking to me. But when I switched from downhill ski racing to cross-country ski racing, I really felt that inner beam of light inside of me again of exploring a natural world under my own devices. I I didn't need a chairlift. I didn't need the gravity. I was getting around on the snow on my own. And, And that full circle was incredibly healing for me. So I think that those two sports, winter sports, even though I didn't grow up in winter, were things that really changed my perspective for me and showed me that as we live and age and change, we can change what we do and still get the same joy. What is your your favorite Paralympic Olympic moment. What, what what is the the one story that's always you're having these amazing dreams about and always going back to you, replaying it in your mind? What is it? Yeah, I am going to disappoint you. I'm so sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because so uh, people also ask me, what was your favorite marathon? Mm-hmm. And or marathon? What was your favorite all... sports moment? <laughs> yeah, your favorite sports moment. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, they're all so different. Mm-hmm. They're all so different, and they all had something that stood out for me, you know? So for instance, Boston marathon. Oh my gosh. Boston marathon is a ding dang wild ride. 
it is a like a roller coaster because there are hills and you go up and down them. But the people along the course are so different in each area. So for instance, we go by, because the course hasn't changed much, uh, go by Wellesley College and it's all women. And the pitch of cheering is so high. <laughs> it almost levitates you. Yeah. And then, then we go by the baseball field and the smell of hot dog and beer and all of that. Exhilarating, you know? <laughs> But if I talk about the Honolulu Marathon, it's a totally different experience. <laughs> I hello, there's the gorgeous Pacific Ocean, yeah, the palm trees. But each one of them has their own energy. I think is a really good way to say it because of the people. It was always the people, and oh yes, I loved going to different countries. Seoul, Korea was amazing for our Paralympic Games, and. And before that, actually, I was in the Olympic Games because they had an exhibition event that started in 1984 here in Los Angeles at the Coliseum. You know, the 1984 Games, LA had the opportunity to hold the Paralympic Games and they felt that they couldn't do that. It would be too expensive. And Juan Antonio Samaranch, this is the story I understand. Juan Antonio Samaranch was the president of the International Olympic Committee at the time. He also was a champion of disabled sport in Spain. And because they weren't going to hold the Paralympic Games in Los Angeles, he wanted something to happen. And the organizers came together with this idea that they would have two events, male and a female event, on the track in the Coliseum for wheelchair racing. There would be an 800 meters for women and a 1500 meters for men. And the athletes from all over the world would have to qualify and it would be a final. Oh, nice. Yes. (laughs) And I qualified for the women's event. Mm -hmm. I mean, 1984. So Paralympic sport has no profile everywhere, anywhere, right? In the media, in broadcasting, nothing really. Nobody knows about us. And To enter the stadium of 80,000 people was pretty big deal. Yeah, huge deal. Yeah, they broadcasted the event worldwide. And it was a real game changer for people with disabilities because we were viewed as capable. We were viewed in so many positive lights that many stigmas and biases were torn away by the people that saw these events. And this exhibition event went on for several more games. And, uh, and in the 84 event, I, I got lucky. Yeah. I won a bronze medal and. Well, it's not luck, but that's awesome. (laughs) Oh, honestly, I do think I got lucky because full disclosure to everyone, the gun went off. And I completely blanked out. I tell you, practice, practice, practice. Perfect practice makes perfect because I practiced a lot and I have no recollection of going around that track twice. (laughs) And I was so out of my body through the whole thing with the 80,000 people and all of it and where we were and what we were accomplishing. 
when I finished the race in the moment, I, I was pretty devastated because I was sure I was going to win that gold medal, dang nabbit. But I didn't. And uh, Sharon Hedrick did. And she did it in fantastic fashion. And she was present for the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, you know, that the next time it came around in 88, I was present. I earned that spot again. And I did win another bronze medal. And I was really clear about how it all came down. And I was very happy with my performance. Awesome. So I did learn a lot in those four years. <laughs> I want to do this combo question. So let's talk about the present. What are your goals right now? I know I mentioned a couple of things in the bio, but I don't think people caught it. So what are your goals now? And you know what? I still think you're one of the youngest people around. What is your goals in the future? When I think about what it is, that I want to do. I think it's a reflective of what I've always wanted to do. One is be better. I want to be better than I was. And it's not about a productivity thing. It's about a personal thing. It's about a spiritual thing. I want to be a person that lives from a more compassionate place, but also contributes to a better society. The places and work and people that I've encountered in my life have all been mentors for me and taught me how to do those things. So for me, I want to be able to try to continue to heal the trauma that's in society that we all face. And especially if we're part of marginalized groups. So for me, I want to try to dismantle racism and the ableism that exists. And I want to be able to share my abundance that I've been able to gather. So I volunteer for things. And it's how I found Keen. I was at this event that happens in different places around the country. They're called the Abilities Expos. And the Abilities Expos are all about the things that can make our lives easier and also bring forward more resources. And yes, it's focused on disability and aging and things, but honestly, we're all getting there. (laughs) You're going to be a part of the disability community because aging gets you. So really, disability is a human life experience we're all going to have. And, And these expos bring forward what exists now and what can exist in the future and people that are doing it. And so I was sitting next to Anthony, who is one of the volunteers at Keene. He's so into this program and we were talking and that's where I learned about Keene. But as I began to explore it a little bit more and Anthony and I continued a relationship of just connecting, I began to think, Hey, you know, I want to learn more about what they do and see how I can contribute. Because one of the things that in the disability community is we're incredibly diverse. Disability covers a really wide spectrum. Yes. And I mean, honestly, everybody's probably got a little something. (laughs) That's probably true. Self-identify yet, right? Right. And there's been a consistent division between physical and developmental or intellectual and cognitive disabilities. And I am in a physical disability space. I have done a lot of volunteer work in that. And I still do with Angel City Sports, which is an organization here in Los Angeles that 
really focuses on a lot of the sports that are practiced in the Paralympics. And I coach there and I coach a, uh, a young man and his sister and uh, they're 10 and nine, 10 and eight years old or something, 11 and nine. Uh, they're going to hate me. Sorry. <laughs> but I, I was like, you know, I mm-hmm. teach about disability and the experience of disability and the different, different disabilities. I should learn more and spend more time with people who aren't like me, like I keep saying people should do and learn more about Keen and how I can can contribute there because I have this really great platform that I've developed to Paralympic sport and the medals. And one of the things I like to do is be able to use that to promote what other people are doing because people want to hear about my sports. They want to hear about my medals. They want to see my medals. (laughs) I want them to see my medals. I want them to put my medals on because When someone puts my medal on or any Olympic or Paralympic medal, or you get a chance to hold the championship cups, you know, like what's the one for hockey? Oh my gosh. I can't remember. Stanley cup. Stanley cup. (laughs) Yes. So you get to hold the Stanley cup, right? Mm -hmm. And I got to hold the Stanley cup. Oh, sweet. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I had no idea how impressive it would be, but they told me, they said, you really want to hold this. And we're going to take a picture of you holding it because people are going to think you're amazingly cool. (laughs) All right. I'll do it. So when I put a medal around someone's neck, there's a magic that happens. And there's a level of doubt that we all have in our lives. And there's also lots of hopes and dreams that we all have in our lives. And sometimes we think that, oh, that's not possible for me. But when I put this medal around people's neck and they're stand there with it and they hold it in their hand or they sit there with it, there is a change in their energy. And I can feel it that, Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to squeeze in one more question. I don't care. Okay. You know I mean, I think, you know, this is the podcast I wanted because, you know, I wanted the show to be about motivation and wellness and for people to get the best out of themselves. And if you could say a piece of, for lack of a better term, advice to anyone, because disability is a very broad term. It's a huge spectrum, you know, and and like you said, most people, you don't even see what the disabilities are. But if if any of my listeners who are, you know, have a disability or people who listen to this podcast, what would be a take-home message or a message you want to give to kind of motivate anyone to kind of getting over the hump and looking that the glass is half full? What would be some advice to them? You know, I have to say first, if you have a disability and you haven't self-identified, you really should. I know you're afraid you might be discriminated against or people might bully you or pick on you, but it's time to be proud because we need people to realize that disability isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad word. It's not a tragic thing that I had an accident. It's a life-changing human experience that should the world wake up and realize that equity and inclusion is critical and access is a piece of it, then each and every one of us will have every opportunity as everyone else. And I want, I want people to realize too that as a disabled person, I'm a conscious consumer. I'm very conscious about the things that I want in my life, I need in my life. I am quite loyal too. when I find something that works. 
because I don't really have the energy to go looking for all this other stuff. I am not a finicky, you know, person that's like, oh, I just try this. Maybe I'll try this and try this. When I find one that works, I stick with it. You know, I think uh, it may have been either my youngest sister who's in costume design or uh, my mother said, you know, when you find a pair of pants that fit you, buy it in every color. (laughs) Right? That's funny. We're going to have to think about it. You know, so there's a little advice for you folks. Mm -hmm. And the other is connect with your community and learn about people who are different from you and really begin to realize that the experience I'm having as a person is my experience and it has value. And the experience that you're having is your experience and it has value. And it's important that we begin to learn about each other's perspectives and begin to integrate them into our experiences because we're missing something if we don't. I know everybody got a bunch of FOMO. We're <laughs> missing out. So if we just connect with as many people as we can that are different from us, then we're not going to miss out. We're actually going to be growing and gaining and and contributing to creating a world where we don't have systemic institutions that discriminate and situations where one group of people is eliminated because they don't seem to have value. And it's all of our responsibilities to dismantle oppression. And really racism is the tree that we all fall from and we have to be active participants in learning how to dismantle that and to learn from the people that know best. If I had my role models list, you're definitely going to make the top 10 role models right there. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. can't give you number one, but you're really up there. I'm telling you, I'm so happy you're with us today. But at the end, you know, for if someone wants to learn more about you, your story, maybe they could, you could, they could convince you to touch one of their, your medals. Um, <laughs> how do they, that sounds how do they, weird, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of, but not really, you know, but. Yeah, but oh, okay, we'll go with it. <laughs> how, how does someone learn more about you or get a hold of you? Is there a, what's the best way to tell my listeners? Uh, so there isn't a website right now, but okay. that's actually something that I used to have one and it's something that I've started to talk with a good friend of mine, Joe Holt, about as he built them. He's like, I think maybe I should build another one again. Uh, But I do have social media. Okay. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Candice Cable now. I have a Facebook page, Candice Cable. And honestly, I don't talk a lot about myself on those. I'm amplifying messages that I think are important for each and every one of us to know about. And to participate and contribute in making that change, you know, that we hear always about make the change you want to see in the world. Because I feel like we have come to a place in this time and space where the energy is ready and ripe to create real opportunity, love, compassion for each other. And that has to happen. We, as a people, need community. Human beings need community. And it's not separate communities. Yeah. It's a big 
all for one, one for all community. And learning how to create that is, I think, one of our greatest missions right now. And to really go forward in love that, mm-hmm. you know, to love ourselves, love ourselves and be compassionate and love others is a piece of it. And so, you know, each bit that we can learn, you know, about somebody else or someone in you, or I mean, like even food, food is such a, for me, I think that's such a wonderful way to connect with each other is to have a meal together because that is that place where we're able to, to relax and interact. And it's a, a little bit like cooperation, right? Like, yeah. You know, they say cooperative play creates the highest level of empathy. And I personally think empathy is great. It's great. But I think compassion is a bigger piece to develop in myself. And hopefully others will, because if you try to feel what it's like to have my experience of a person who uses a wheelchair, you might come away with, oh man, that's hard. And I want you to come away with the idea that, oh, you know what? That's not working for her. And we need to change that. I want people to come away more with a level of idea of impact that they can make an impact and, but not be scared away from it because I am never going to be a person of color. Like I'm not, I'm a Caucasian woman. So I will not know what you that are, <laughs> right? I am, I'm, like, I'm, I'm really white, but everybody is going to have this disability experience. And I want people to get really comfortable with it and comfortable around it. And to know that we are human beings and we all deserve love and we all deserve to have the opportunities that are like blowing up. Yeah. Like opportunity is just like expanding in so many ways that um, we want to, we don't want to leave anybody behind. No, I gotta, I gotta give the the little closing here, which is number one, we're going to put all your social media handles on the show notes so people can find you. And this is the truth. It truly is an honor that you're on my show today. I super enjoyed you being here. I hope all my listeners enjoyed it. And everyone, thank you for tuning in today for another episode of the Dr. Raj podcast. And hey, stay tuned. We're going to hopefully get more amazing guests like Candace Gable in the future. Candace, thanks once again for being here. Oh, thank you. It's my honor to be here. You are so much fun to talk to. And (laughs) all you people can't see him. But when he talks, he likes to close his eyes a little bit. Looks like he is developing an amazing movie. It's it's a pleasure to watch. So I hope one day they get to see you, you know, in action. (laughs) Thank you. All right, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.